We are currently studying in our preaching series about the gospel. And I would commend you to spend the next few weeks as we walk through what is the gospel to evaluate for yourself the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, as helpful as things like the ABCs of salvation are, they're not the full gospel. They're a plan of salvation. They're directions on how to respond to the gospel, but they are not the gospel itself. You see, the gospel begins before time begins and runs to the end of eternity. And if you know when that is, you understand that there is no end to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, before time began, God decided in his mind that he would create this world and he would create us and place us in this world. And in doing so, he understood fully everything that was going to take place. And yet, a good and a gracious and a loving and a sovereign God still created the heavens and the earth and man and woman in his image and placed him here to rule over creation. Knowing what was going to take place, understanding what was to come. So as we walk through what is the gospel in our preaching over the next several weeks, there are a couple of things I want to, readings other than your scriptures, because that's first and foremost, but a couple of other things that I would encourage you to pick up and to take a look at. There's a short book called The Discipleship Gospel. It's written by Bill Hall and Ben Sobels, two friends of mine, very good. And if you read through this, you'll get a pretty good understanding of what the full and complete gospel is and a way that you can use it and apply it in your life. Another reading that may be a bit more challenging is a book by Dr. Matthew Bates called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Don't let the title scare you, but let the title make you think as you read, as he walks through what it means to have faith and the fact that Another translation or gloss for the word, the Greek word meaning what we typically render faith is allegiance. You know, that's what we ask our baptismal candidates. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? They're submitting themselves to a new king. They were the king of their lives. And now Jesus Christ is going to be sitting upon the throne of their life and being their king. But if we really want to understand the gospel in its fullest format and completion, then we must understand, we must understand who God is. And that brings us to our text today. Exodus chapter 34. You see, if we're going to understand the gospel, we need to get the right image of God in our minds because 
In our culture, in our southern society, and in the American Bible Belt in general, we have a tendency to misrepresent God in the way that we view him. We have a tendency to misrepresent God in the way that we understand him. You see, because most of us, even though we probably wouldn't say it this way, but most of us have an understanding of God that he's got his left hand behind his back holding an anvil or a mallet and he's got his finger pointed at us, rebuking us and waiting on us to do something wrong so that he can bring his other hand and smash us into bits. You see, typically that's the way we view God. It's, it's, it's a human paradigm. It's a paradigm that says, I have to do something to be good enough to earn favor with God. It's a paradigm that says, I need to work and to serve and to do and to accomplish this relationship that God has so graciously gifted me with. Because you see, we like to believe and think that we are capable of doing it ourselves. As I come to this text, I'm indebted to a man named Sandy Mason. He is the pastor of... Phoenix Desert View Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and a master communicator of the Word of God and a loving shepherd for his people and others. But I want to set the tone and the location of our text for you before we get into reading Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Because you, you see what we have is if you remember what's going on in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, God comes and he calls Moses and he, he calls him out and he gives him his divine name, Yahweh. In your Bible, it's probably represented in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord. That's Yahweh. It, it's the it's the personal private name of God and God reveals this to Moses as, as he calls him to deliver his people out of the bondage that they are in in Egypt and so he delivers them out of Egypt and he brings them into the desert and he brings them to Mount Sinai and at Mount Sinai, God himself, and if you read the text carefully in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, what you see there is God himself declaring his statutes, his decalogue, his commandments to his people. So you have the people gathered around the mountain and the voice of God coming down out of the clouds and commanding and telling them his commandments. And when we see that, when we hear that, it shocks us a little bit. And matter of fact, it was pretty shocking to the children of Israel as they stood there at Mount Sinai and they hear the voice of God giving them his commandments, so much so that they look at Moses and say, Moses, we're afraid. We don't want to stand in direct communication with God. You go be our intercessor. You speak to God on our behalf and then you come back and you tell us because we're afraid to talk to God. 
And so we see that happen and Moses ascends the mountain and as he does, he's there for quite some time communing with God in relationship with God, in uh, an understanding of God and God writes out his commandments and he brings those commandments written by the hand of God on those tablets and he walks down the mountain, he hears the people from afar off and the people are worshiping a golden calf. You see what Aaron had done is Aaron had formed the calf and then he had said, this is Yahweh, the God that brought you out of Egypt. And oh, what a profanity that was to the ears of the only one true God. Because that calf of gold was not him. It may have been spectacular and exquisite, but it was nothing compared to Yahweh himself. So Moses breaks the tablets there and God tells the people, you go. I'm still gonna do what I promised you that I was going to do because I'm God and I keep my word. I'll send an angel before you and drive out your enemies. You take over the land that I have promised you but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to be in your midst. Because if I were to come into your midst, I would devour you. And we see what Moses do, what he does so often. He intercedes for the people of God. You see, as I was studying this text, I believe that before the preacher can bring the word of God to the people of God, the word of God has to work on the preacher. And as I studied this text, I asked myself, have I ever loved the people of God the way Moses loved the people of God? Have I ever said can count me in with them no matter the cost. God, if you're not going to be with us and go up with us, then I am with this people and strike me out as you strike them out. And so I wrestle with that in my own heart and in my own life. And I cry out to God, pleading with him to give me a love for the people of God like Moses has. Because you see, as leaders, it's easy to look at the life of Moses and say, man, he had some rough people to have to deal with. I got some rough people to have to deal with. And that's where we acknowledge what's going on with Moses. But that's not it. Moses loved the people of God with everything that he had to love them with. And as leaders, that's the desire, should be the desire of our heart is to love the people of God with everything in us. And so that brings us to Exodus chapter 34. Stand with me, if you would, as we read Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 7. 
The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children's children to the third and fourth generation. May God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. See, when we come to this text, God is saying, I'm not going with you, Moses. And Moses has interceded with the people. And, and God has said, well, you know, what we were doing there on Mount Sinai with those tablets is we were cutting covenant with one another. And so we need to renew the covenant that has already been stated. It was so quickly broken, but we need to renew the covenant. And so he calls Moses. God says, Moses, come on up to the mountain again. This time you go cut the stone tablets, bring them up with you, and I will write on them my commands. And so Moses, understanding what's going on and knowing what's happening, does exactly as God commands him. He prepares himself to rise early in the morning. The tablets are there. He gathers them up. He climbs up on Mount Sinai, and there he is waiting on God. And God does not disappoint. God descends on the mountain, and God comes down in all of his splendor and in all of his glory. But I want you to understand that as much as, as there is an awesome picture there of God revealing himself in his presence to Moses, there's just as beautiful of a picture of God revealing himself to Moses through the relationship that he has with Moses. We get so distracted sometimes by the glory of God and the fact that Moses is asked to see God and God says, you can't do that. That would destroy you, but I'll let you see my backside as I go past. I'll hide you and then I'll let you see the train of my glory so you can catch just a glimpse of the greatness and the might of God. And that's what God does for Moses. But don't get so distracted by that, that we miss the fact that Moses 
It's communing with God in a way that no one else ever has save Jesus Christ. On an ongoing basis, Moses is spending time in the very presence of God. Now, before we start longing so deeply to have what Moses had, understand that the beauty of the relationship that Moses had with God is the fact that you and I can have that same type of relationship with God where we can live every single moment of our lives in the direct presence of God as Christ invades us and indwells us and the spirit of God overwhelms us and empowers us and strengthens us. We don't have to look back in, at Moses and long for what he had. The scriptures tell us that the prophets looked at what they had and they longed for what we have. We have a relationship, the opportunity for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we're just as guilty as Israel was. We're guilty of our sin. We're guilty of our rebellion. We're guilty of being enemies of God. We're guilty of running after our own desires and own pleasures. We're just as guilty as Israel was. God calls Moses up. He goes, he comes down. And then what we see here is that God begins to reveal himself to Moses in a new way. You see, in Exodus chapter three, through the burning bush, God gives Moses his unique and private personal name. But that's about it. Yahweh, I am who I am. I am who I am and I will be who I will be. That's great, God, but what else? Tell me about yourself. So this time when the glory of God descends, he passes by Moses and he proclaims his name again, Yahweh, Yahweh. But he doesn't stop there. He begins to lay out some attributes and thoughts about God that will take root in the hearts and lives of Israel from that moment forward. Because you see, those past that those verses right there, verses six and seven, let me read them to you. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will not by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God began to explain the depths of the reality of his name. I am who I am and I will be who I will be. I am Yahweh and this is what that means for you, my people 
called by me to become mine. As a matter of fact, what we see is that this passage, these words are used over and over and over again to describe the glory and the might and the awesomeness of God and who he is. You see in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, we see this after the people rebel, Moses again intercedes on their behalf. And as he is interceding to God on behalf of the people, he says this refrain again. But, but God, you are God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. He reminds God in the midst of their sin, in the midst of them needing forgiveness, he reminds God of how gracious he is, of who he is and what he's done. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse nine, these words are used again to call the people of Israel back to God out of their rebellion. Nehemiah chapter 9, two times, the people of God use these words as they're confessing their sin to an almighty God, reminding God of his promises. More than that, reminding God of who he is and why in the world that as dirty, rotten, no good sinners, they can stand in his presence and proclaim anything to him. They go back to this refrain. David in the Psalms uses this, these words more than three times to declare the praise of God, the blessing of God upon the people and to pray that God would remind, remember this as he is in the midst of turmoil and needs God to respond and answer him. And again in Joel chapter two, this passage is once again used to call the people of God back to God, reminding them that they can return to God because of who he is as he has laid it out for them to see. Probably one of the most famous uses of these words comes in Jonah chapter four. And in Jonah chapter four, this is where Jonah says, you know, God, when you called me to go to this people here in Nineveh, you remember what I did? I got on the ship and I ran the other way. God, you remember why I did that? Because I knew who you were. I knew at the core of who you are that you are a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God, I knew you would do that. And I didn't want that for those people. But in Nahum chapter one, we see as the prophet proclaims a woe to the city of Nineveh, that God's patience and love and mercy has an ending point as he proclaims what's going to happen to them. 
You see, this is who God is. And if we want to understand the gospel in a right context and in a right setting, we have to understand who God is. And this is where we need to come to get our understanding of who God is, because this is where God's people for millennia have gone to discover who God is. So let me read it to you again, because at some point we have to sink this so far down into our heads and into our hearts that we push out a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of God that has been taught to us, has been proclaimed to us, and been believed by us for decades. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Just, just listen to it. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands. And the better translation of that, and you've heard me read it, for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who by no means clear the guilty. Do you hear the goodness of God? Because what we've got to start asking of God is, God, not what do I have to do in order for you not to smite me like a roach? God, how in the world can you be so dadgum good? God, how can you be so good? God, how can you be so good to love someone like me? God, how can you be so good to offer forgiveness of iniquity and wickedness and sin? and rebellion and my wicked broken heart. God, how can you be so good as to love a sinner like me? Because the question is not, God, how can I get to you? The question is, God, how can I enjoy your presence right now? How can I live in you? Well, let me tell you. You can live in God by understanding God. He's not this cosmic killjoy waiting to destroy all of your happiness. Just remember what this, where this passage is based. The children of Israel had just created for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. And here we sit, Moses interceding on, with God on their behalf. And God in response, begins to explain who he is in a fuller and richer and better way than they've ever understood it before. Because you see what he says here is that God, in verse six, the Lord passed by and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful. This Hebrew word, has the same root as womb. 
It's merciful. It's really referring to the softness of the mother's womb, the nurturing of a mother's womb, the care and kindness and softness and gentleness of a mother's womb. And God can say that to us in that context because he is our creator. This goes back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis chapter one, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. He is our creator. We came from his womb. And so we get to experience the softness and the richness and the blessing of that kind of relationship with God. And then he says, he's not only merciful, but he's gracious. God acts generously to us, even though we don't deserve it. God is gracious to us in reference to using and pouring out his soft, gentle mercy to the needy and repentant. And I don't know about you, but I need God. As we sang that song this morning, all kinds of emotions stir up within me as I cry out in truth, I need you every single moment of my life because I can't do anything without you. And he says that he's slow to anger. You see, we don't usually think of God in this way. What we usually think of is a wrathful God who's killed his people. And yes, when the people sinned, several of them died. He killed the unrepentant, absolutely. But think about what's happening here. You have Israel here who has absolutely brought dishonor and disgrace to the God who has given them everything. And they're still alive. They're still there. You see, this slow to anger, it, it really, it talks about God cooling off and sledding, settling down and slowing down and instead of reacting and responding immediately as, as most of us do so many times with wrath and anger. even as it's brought out of our sin. God is slow to anger. And then we come to one of my favorite biblical words of describing God. His chesed, his chesed, his chesed love, his steadfast love for us. Because one, when you watch this, when you look at this passage, it's the only word that is describing God that's used twice. And so he's really trying to, to lay out who he really is. And it's the best translation that we have is a steadfast love. There's just not something that's much better than that. But the word itself in Hebrew is much stronger than just some steadfast love. It's not strong enough. You see, it's an unrelenting love. 
It's a pursuing kind of love. It's a love that represents a tenacious fidelity between one to another. It's a steadfast love. And it's the kind of love that only God can truly give to us. It's a unique kind of love. It's a love that's ready to resolve and continue. It pursues us tenaciously. It's unrelenting in its tenacious pursuit of us. You just can't put all of that in the text when we translate it to English. But that's what it means. It's not this, oh, I love you. I love this. I love this. I love that. It's not, you know, we've, we've known each other for three weeks and I'm going to say I love you because it's the thing that we do. No, you don't. Just truth. Give it about five years and then you can look at him and say, I love you and deeply mean it because then you'll have gone through something. That's a side note. And then God is faithful. His steadfast love and faithfulness. God is going to keep his word. When God makes a promise, he's going to keep that promise. God is faithful. He's true and trustworthy and reliable in everything that he says. And that's why we can look at this word and we can say it is inerrant and infallible and true and trustworthy in every single word. Because the God who gave it to us is faithful. God is faithful. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Now we're going to get to it, but I want you to just start right here because I, I don't want, I want you to see from the very beginning that the thousands of generations is the best translation that's possible in this. The ESV got it wrong. There are other translations that got this right and I hope yours got it right if you're not using the ESV. Because in this setting and in this context, what we have are two, thing, two areas of time juxtaposed to one another. His steadfast love and faithfulness will continue for thousands of generations. But the consequences of your sin will go to the third and fourth generation. Do you understand? There's no comparison of God's love and kindness and the consequences of sin. God's steadfast love always wins out because of his steadfast love. Because you see, he, he starts to make this transition. He's transitioning now from giving you all these wonderful adjectives to describe who he is but he's keeping this steadfast love for thousands of generations. And then he's forgiving. And listen to what he's forgiving. Iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity is the, all, these are the three words 
in Hebrew to describe the different and various types of sin. Iniquity is a sin in the relationship that has long-term consequences. This is one we talk about wickedness, iniquity. When you, when you read your scripture and it talks about a wickedness and sin of iniquity, it's something that's going to happen and it's going to carry on to the next generation and to the next. You see, this type of sin is pornography. It's wickedness and it carries on from one generation to the next. This type of sin is, is alcoholism because it, typically if you read the statistics, it carries on from one generation to the next. This is a type of sin that's abuse in the home because what do the statistics tell us? Most abusers were abused. It's a sin that carries on from one generation to the next. Now, that does not mean that it has to. Please hear me. I'm never going to say that because Scripture doesn't say that. And we know that God can absolutely rescue us out of those generational sins. But there are generational sins and there are sins that we do that have consequences. I can remember being a kid growing up around Lake Bridgeport, Texas, and, and I met a man and he had drank some bad moonshine. And when I say bad moonshine, it was really bad moonshine. It didn't just taste bad. It was poison. And, and it caused him to have problems for the rest of his life. I can remember the end of my 11th grade year of high school moving to Coleman, Alabama. And that, from that moment, from that point until the end of my senior year, I rode to school with a young man almost every morning. He went to our church, he and I were friends. I remember sometime during our senior year, he started doing some recreational drugs. And I remember in, when I moved away to college, I heard that he was having some problems because he had gotten some crystal meth. It was bad and it was about 60% comet crystals and it messed him up. And from that moment forward, he began having seizures. You see, sometimes sin has long lasting consequences. As a matter of fact, one of those seizures happened to him as he was driving down Interstate 65 and he crossed the median and hit a loaded cement truck head on. You see, sometimes sin has consequences and that's what we really are seeing here is that, that iniquity there. God's gonna tell us how he deals with it. And then we have the transgression. The transgression is, is a covenant breaking sin. Israel was in covenant with God and when they break the covenant, it's a transgression against the covenant. So it's in a relationship with someone that that type of sin happens. And then we have the normal everyday word for sin, missing the mark, moving off of God's path onto our own. You see what God's telling us. Remember, he's forgiving these things. God is gracious and merciful and steadfast in his love. And he is a God who forgives every single kind of sin. There's no sin in your life that God cannot and will not and does not forgive. We need to understand that. There's nothing you've done 
that God can't forgive, you are a forgive, forgivable person. Your sin is forgivable because we have a God who says, I will forgive every type of sin. And then as he moves on, he says, but I am a just God. No, I can't clear the guilty. And the consequences, notice what he goes back to. He says, visiting the iniquity. Remember, this is, these are generational type sins. The, the generational type sins that go from one generation to the next, they're going to continue. I will step in in times and stop them cold turkey, but typically they're going to continue from one generation to the next, still only four generations at worst, and God's love and steadfast kindness and mercy and forgiveness go to thousands of generations. You see, there's, there's no comparison. But what God's really saying here is, Moses' guilt is guilt and sin is sin and some sin has consequences and those, I'm gonna allow those consequences to continue. You can turn to me and repent. You can come to me and I can stop those but sometimes I'm gonna allow the consequences of sin to continue because you see, even in his justice, even in his judgment, even in his discipline, all of that does not begin with God's wrath and anger. Where does it begin? It begins with his love. God's dealing with us does not begin with your sin. That's not where it starts. God's dealing with you and God's dealing with me begins with his love. And I don't know about you, but I am so glad that that's where God's dealing with me began. I am so glad that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger because I deserve nothing but to be struck down by the hand of God in my, the midst of my rebellion. But God, but God is not me and he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and he will pour it out on us. And so God explains who he is to his people. And, and ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls and teenagers and college students and everybody gathered today, I want you to understand this is where we must come to get our understanding of God. This is who God is. Gracious and merciful, forgiving God. He's not looking to destroy us. He's looking to pour his love out on us. And when we begin to get that right perspective of God, then we can move forward in a right kind of gospel that is dependent upon God. But I want you to notice what happens at the end of this passage. Because if you ask me how, Aaron, so how are we to respond to this message of who God is? 
I would tell you that we should respond exactly the same way as Moses did. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Worship God and God alone because this description of God makes him far superior to everything else out there and the only thing to be worshiped and praised, nothing else. Worship God. And then, if I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go up in the midst of us for. It is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Worship God and acknowledge your wickedness. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge his power and his sovereign authority over you and beg him to remember who he is. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. You respond to God in that way. And see, if you don't come to a greater, larger, more complete and thorough understanding of not only who God is, but what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, let us pray.